Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, I had a crazy week. I uh, left last Sunday right uh, after the beginning of second service to go to a conference, to go to a, a convention in southwest Missouri. And so last Sunday, I flew from Grand Rapids to Dallas. And if you can think back to last Sunday, one of the big things in the news last Sunday and Monday was that Dallas was full of ice. So I spent the night in Dallas rather than getting to uh, the conference where I was. I ended up spending two days um, on the front end just trying to figure out how to get where I was going and uh, finally getting there uh, a little bit late for the conference, but I made it and that was great. On Thursday, I flew back from um, the conference through Chicago. And if uh, some of you paid attention to the weather in Chicago, O'Hare was shut down Thursday and Friday because of ice. And so I spent Thursday and Friday in Chicago in the airport. Great fun. The really cool thing was I got to spend a night in Dallas with a friend that um, that uh, goes back about 30 years, 35 years, and uh, a friend in Chicago that uh, goes back about 20 years, 25 years. So just some, some really cool ways um, God provided for us. So I didn't have to stay at the airport itself, didn't have to get a hotel by myself, was able to hang out with friends, and that was really cool. But while I was in the airport, I'm uh, on my computer doing work, uh, going through a bunch of stuff, and checked Facebook and found out that Facebook had blown up this week with the question, right? Here it is. Is it white and yellow or? (laughs) White and gold. Um, Last night, I have this up on my computer and I say to my wife and son, okay, tell me, white and gold or, or blue and black? And my wife said, are you kidding? And I said, no. What do you see? And, and she said, you're kidding, right? It's clear. It's blue and black. And I said, no, it's not. It's white and gold. And she said, you're kidding. And I said, no. How, ma- how many white and golds? How many blue and blacks? How many don't care? Uh, well, here's the deal. I, you know, I'm thumbing through Facebook and I see this article that was written by a guy named Adam Rogers. Uh, he wrote the, the, this was the lead for his article about how color affects the way that you see the dress and all that kind of stuff. He said, this is the opening lines. Not since Monica Lewinsky was a White House, in, in, was a White House intern has one blue dress been the source of so much consternation. 1995, how many of you were around and remember Monica Lewinsky, President Clinton's famous statement, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Remember that? Um, Historians, I think, will point to that time as a time where a shift in the United States culture about the presidency happened. Because what... President Clinton said didn't match with what ultimately um, came out. Doesn't matter what your politics are, whether you're, uh, you know, Democrat, Republican, a fan of President Clinton and his policies, not a fan of President Clinton and his policies. When President Clinton stood up and told a half truth, it changed the perception of we as citizens about trust 
in the presidency, right? Do you remember that? It was a very real thing. Um, that, that, um, those days have direct, uh, a direct reference to today's message. We're, we've been talking, we've been in the book of Acts talking about the boldness of the church, the bold start of the church. We're in Acts 5 today, going to go through the entire chapter, which is going to go really, really fast. It's a, uh, some really cool stuff happens in there. But to kind of get a running start, I want to take you back to Chris's message last week where the, where the disciples come together and they pray for boldness, right? They pray that God would allow them to speak boldly about Jesus. Peter and John had healed lame men. The guys walking, leaping, praising God in the temple. They get called in. They get thrown into jail. Ultimately, the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, says, okay, we're going to release you, but don't talk about Jesus. They come home. The disciples are there. They pray for boldness. And this is the end of Chris's message. This is, this is the result of that prayer for boldness. Beginning in verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. There was bold unity, bold generosity. And ultimately, there's this example that comes in verse 36. And Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, was a Levite, a, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's the introduction of this character Barnabas that's going to come up later um, in the book of Acts. This guy that the apostles nicknamed the encourager. This guy's life was characterized by the encouraging words, by the investment that he made in other people. Really, really cool thing. And he sells this piece of property, brings it, lays the money at the apostles' feet. It's distributed, and everybody celebrates. There's this sense in the church at the end of Acts chapter 4 that everybody's jazzed. God is working. God's doing an incredible thing. People are talking about Jesus. It's really, really cool. And Barnabas is kind of like the poster boy for the church. Son of encourager. Um, who do you encourage? And who encourages you? Just kind of a side thought this morning. I got a couple of notes in the mail in the last couple of weeks that were really, really cool. Um, notes that just said, hey, thanks for what you're doing. You know, encouragement kind of fuels us, right? I spent a lot of time in the airport this week, and um, I had a chance to go through the results of the survey that many of you participated in. It was a really cool thing to look at all the answers to the questions, but then to go through 28 pages of comments as people, you know, all the comments were, were brought together for us. And so reading through all of those comments, there are some really encouraging things that said, you know, get out my highlights. Oh, that's really cool. There were some discouraging things, too. Um, some, some things, some areas where we can grow and some challenges. Encouragement, though, fuels us and, and, and allows us to continue to go forward, to do ministry, to, to, to keep on as parents, as employees, as leaders. Encourage. Who do you encourage? Who, who encourages you? 
Um, verse 5 starts with a conjunction, or chapter 5 starts with a conjunction, a word that says something different is happening. You've got Barnabas is the poster boy because he sells this. Chapter 5 starts with the word but. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You haven't lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. No kidding. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You know, in the church, when a big gift comes in, and when a check comes in that's thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, church celebrates, right? That's a really, really cool thing because there's going to be resources available for the kingdom that weren't there before. We're going to be able to do stuff that we couldn't do before. That's the picture of what's going on here. Ananias comes in with his shoes check. He sells this piece of property. He brings it to the apostles and said, hey, hey, here's the money I got for, for selling the land. And Peter asks him a question and says, what made you think that you could lie to the Holy Spirit? And when Peter asks that question, Ananias drops dead. I think Peter was probably as surprised as anyone. I don't think that Peter necessarily recognized that that was what was going to happen. That God was going to intervene in that way. But he did. Peter calls for help. Some guys come in and carry Ananias' body out. It's probable that Peter then told everybody, you know what? Let's not talk about this for a little bit. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife comes in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold that land for so much. What he's saying is, you know, the land was sold for $100,000 and Ananias had brought $80,000. Tell me whether you sold the land for $80,000. And she said, yep, that's, that's the amount. Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Sapphira comes in, she perpetuates the lie, and Peter knows this time what's coming. He said, why are you doing this? Why are you messing with God? Why are you trying to fool God, it's not about us. It's about your relationship with him. Here's the, here's the big truth, I think, that comes out of this opening section of Acts chapter 5. Understand, this was true in the first century, and it's true now. God sees everything. God hears everything. God knows everything, and God owns Everything. Nothing we can do is hidden from God. 
we just sang a little bit ago. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and take away. God is the one who gives life. And God can take it away. If you read that passage and you're not familiar with Scripture, if you haven't thought much about God, that gets a little scary. God has the ability to just kill people on the spot. God's the one who gives life. You know, as kids, I think we think that parents become parents, they get this manual, right? And they don't really, but there are some things that are pretty um, generalized. They happen in lots and lots of homes. How many of you either have said or have heard this line, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Very many. You know what? That, it, it, that's one of those things that you say. Now, it's not really true, right? Because if we took our kid out, we'd go to jail. They'd be dead. But that is true of God. We only have life because God gives it to us. If that's a hard statement, if that's a hard truth, I, let me encourage you to just take a step back and recognize who God is. Chris last week talked about the sovereignty of God. God is the Lord of the universe. God is the one who gives us the breath that we breathe. He gives us the blood that, that courses through our bodies. And God, if there's anything to learn from this, it's that God is just. There can be no mercy. There can be no grace without justice. Paul wrote in the book of Romans and said, the wages of sin is death, right? The free gift of God's eternal life. That's the hopeful part. But recognize that God knew that in the church in the first century, to simply look the other way while these people brought this money and lied about the amount of money it was, that it would erode the credibility of the church. It would erode the credibility of the leaders. It would, that sin would come in and spoil and infect the body. And God dealt with it incredibly severely and quickly. And the result was that it impacted the church in an incredible, in a, in a different kind of way. The issue, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they didn't give all the money. Peter says to Ananias, right? Hey, that field was yours to deal with however you wanted. You could sell it or not sell it. You could give all the money or you could give part of the money. But you can't give part of the money and claim it to be all of the money. That was, that was the issue. Um, Abraham Lincoln said... To tell a half-truth as the whole truth is no truth at all. If you're a parent, write that down. To tell a half-truth as a whole truth is no truth at all. Um, I, in, my, in the first service, I mentioned my son, Micah, who was sitting right down here. He's, he's, he's heard that so many times. Because I said to him, you know what, don't tell me, hey, I'm going to the library and then go to a friend's house. And then when I ask you, say, oh, yeah, I went to the library, walked in, walked out, went to my friend's house. To tell a half-truth as a whole truth is no truth at all. You understand that? That's not true for our kids. That's true for us in our relationship with God. God sees all, hears all, knows all. He knows what's going on inside of us. 
J.W. McGarvey wrote, Every time a member of the church at the present day makes exaggerated statements of the amount he is giving or understates the amount of his wealth, in order to make a degree of generosity beyond what is real, he is guilty of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. If all such were to drop dead in their tracks, there would be a thinning of the ranks in some places. Interesting statement. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the praise of men more than they wanted the praise of God, right? They saw what happened with Barnabas. They saw him exalted, esteemed by everybody around, and they wanted that. They wanted people to say, oh, there's Ananias and Sapphira. They, they gave that big gift to the church. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the praise of men rather than the praise of God, and they loved and trusted their money more than they loved and trusted God. For some reason, they felt like whatever that differential was, whatever the difference was between what they sold it for and what they gave to the church, they felt like they needed that money for protection. They needed that money as, you know, as an as a emergency fund. They needed that money to go buy something else. They loved and trusted their money more than they loved and trusted God. Why do you give? You know, every week we've already done it. The offering buckets have gone by. Why do you, why do you give? I, I, I've talked to a lot of people over the years about that, and people give for different reasons. Some people give just because they were taught to give, and so they just, that's just what they do. It's just a normal part of stuff. Some people give out of this sense of obligation. Oh, I go to the church. I guess I should give something. Some people give because everybody else around them is, and they don't want to, they don't want to, look out of place. Some people, some people give because they kind of view church kind of like a, a, a concert deal, that they need to pay their share for, for what they receive on Sunday morning. Why is it that you give? A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend, and, and they shared a story that just fits wonderfully with this morning's message. And I asked, I said, hey, would you share that story on Sunday morning? Would you, would you just tell the story? And, um, and they actually weren't comfortable coming on stage because of something that, that it'll kind of get explained. But let me, let me share their story as you think about what is it, what is your motivation for giving? Dear Pastor Rick, just before Christmas this year, I felt the Lord working on some areas of my heart that needed a bit of tweaking for 2015, and maybe for the rest of my life. The first was in the realization of the sugar in our healthy eating habits, and the second was in the area of money. Those sound random, right? Let me share how our amazing God tied these two things together and grew my heart in the process. My husband and I learned early in our marriage and faith about the tithe and the promise God attaches to it. We accepted that challenge from Malachi to test the Lord in this, even in our most challenging financial times. And we've experienced the windows of heaven poured open for us beyond anything we could ever imagine. We could share countless stories of pay increases, unexplainable checks in the mail, more than fair trade-in values, protected identity, tax returns, blessings, and blessings. So we have obediently given the first 10% to God, to God's kingdom in a trackable, tax-deductible way every month. That's right, trackable and tax-deductible. 
I had somehow justified in my mind that a part of God's blessing back to us was maximizing our tax returns with tax-deductible contributions. So even without realizing the condition of my heart, I put limitations on our obedience in giving by only giving where it could be accounted for by the government and tracked for our taxes. We were joyful and generous givers with a motivation to get a tax write-off. Not that a tax deduction is bad or wrong, but if that's limiting where you think God asks you to give, then God might start to do a bit of tweaking in your life. Around Christmas time, I heard a call to do something crazy. I talked it over with my husband, and he agreed. God had our obedience with our money, but he wanted more than that. He wanted our hearts along with our money. So the week after Christmas, when I made my weekly list for Meyer, I left off all the sugar, cookies, cereal, candy, and added a $50 gift card. You see, God had wanted us to give in a way that couldn't be tracked or tax deducted. He wanted us to be accountable to him and not the government. Out of faith that first week, I bought a $50 gift card from our grocery budget, and I left it for the customer behind me at Meijer. Week two, I prayed through the store, wondering who God would bless with his $50. By the end of the first month, I couldn't wait to see who would get in line behind the lady with the cart full of groceries and then ask the cashier to help me bless the person behind me. My heart was changing, and no one knew but God. Do you want to know the wildest part of the story? God deductible is way more valuable than tax deductible. Since stepping out in this new heart experiment and adding a $50 gift card to each weekly Meyer trip, our monthly grocery budget has not changed. I have a hard time explaining how we could keep the same grocery budget while adding $200 a month in gift cards. But for the God of the universe, I guess it's easy math. Perhaps it's cutting out cookies and sweets, less food going to waste, weekly sales, leftovers, coupons, and school lunch supplies lasting longer in the cupboard. But whatever it is, I'm experiencing God's provision in a whole new way. Not to mention the amazing opportunity to talk about giving with our children and how that provision is providing the opportunity to bless others. My children get so excited when we check out, whispering and smiling at the person behind us. To tell you the truth, we haven't even missed the fruit snacks and Oreos compared to the rush of being the hands, feet, and wallet of Jesus. When Rick asked me to share, I have to admit I was a bit hesitant for a number of reasons, the least of which was embarrassment over the conviction of the motivation of my heart on why we give. My husband and I feel very strongly about tithing and consider our entire checking account to be God's money. He only asks for 10%. How blessed are we to responsibly steward the other 90%? But God saw a shadow in this faithful steward, and that was in my motivation for giving my misplaced trust in the government to account for our generosity. I needed to recognize that only one opinion really matters. My husband and I think our $50 challenge this year is still growing our hearts and working out pride and trust and motivation and making us even more fruitful stewards for our Lord and Savior. That's why we're sharing anonymously today, so that we can allow God to finish the work in our hearts. Not everyone is called to give gift cards, each week at Meyer, but we're all called to follow God's call in our individual walks with Christ. 
Obedience in a tithe is a great place to start. Just know that God isn't after your money. After all, his streets are paved in gold. He's after your heart. Is that great or what? Now everybody wants to go shop at Meyer, right? <laughs> Let me be that person. What's your motivation for giving? What's your motivation for serving Jesus? What's your motivation for being faithful? That's the core. Because God wants our heart. God sees all, hears all, knows all. Nothing is hidden from him. As a result of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, change happened incredibly. It's not that, that all of a sudden people, um, that their perspective of the church lessened. Just the opposite. Look at verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Solomon's porch in the temple. That seemed to be their place where they met and studied, where they they, um, preached. None of the rest of the community dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they all were healed. What was the result? What was the response of Ananias and Sapphira's death? Signs and wonders were done regularly by the apostles. People were afraid to join the church. They were afraid that if they joined, their bad motives would be exposed and they could die as a result of that. There was a healthy sense of fear there. But the church was held in high esteem. People said, what they have, I want. I want a part of that. I want to be a part of that. Verse 14 says that believers were added um, day by day. They were multiplied. Multitudes of both men and women. There was physical healing that took place, spiritual healing as demons were cast out, unclean spirits were, were, were gone. The result of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira's death was that the church was transformed, it was purified. It shone like a diamond in the middle of Jerusalem, and people were drawn to Jesus as a result. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. See what's going on? The community, every, everybody's just amazed at what's going on. They hold the church in high esteem. But the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the guys who rule Judaism, they get angry. They're jealous. Why? What do you think that they were jealous of? I think that they were jealous of the reputation of the church, the high esteem that people held um, the church with. They wanted that. They wanted that respect, but they didn't have it. I think that they were jealous of the numbers of the church. There was this growing movement that had started with 3,000, grown to 5,000. Now multitudes are, are becoming followers of Jesus. There was this sense of growth that was there, and they were getting left behind because Judaism 
didn't have a lot of proselytes, right? A lot of people that came in and were grafted into Judaism. It was kind of stagnant unless you had babies. And all of a sudden there's this church that's being born that hundreds and thousands of people are saying, I want to be part of that. I want to follow Jesus. I think that they were jealous of the power of the apostles. They didn't have the power to heal. They didn't have the power to do the things that the apostles were doing. I think they were jealous of that. I think they were jealous of the attention that, that, um, that the apostles had. So they were filled with jealousy. They arrest the apostles. I'll pause just for a second. Peter and John, I, I had always read Acts chapter 5, and for some reason I, I, I thought in terms of this arrest that it was Peter and John. But I think as you read the text closely, it's clear that it's all 12. Caiaphas is the high priest. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Caiaphas is like, he's the Mac Daddy of Judaism in Jerusalem, right? He, he is the Pope kind of guy. Um, and and he's, he was the one behind the death of Jesus, right? He was the one that, was, that, was, that, that uh, put Jesus out there to be killed. He's the one who's leading this charge. And I think what Caiaphas thought was, originally, if Jesus is killed... That'll be the end of this. We'll be back in our place. Everything will be good. Jesus gets killed. Three days later, God raises him from the dead. Jesus teaches, interacts with people. Jesus does incredible stuff. That didn't solve the problem. And so now I think Caiaphas thinks, if I take these 12 guys who have spent the last three years with Jesus, these 12 guys who are closest to him, these 12 guys that have the power to heal and get rid of them, exterminate them, kill them, that will be the end of these followers of Jesus. That's what Caiaphas was thinking. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Hold on for just a second. What do you think the apostles were thinking while they're in jail that night? The 12 are there inside the jail. I think that they thought what we would think if that were to happen to us. I think that they they would have asked the why question over and over again. Why are we in jail? What did we miss? I thought that God wanted us to tell the story of Jesus, and yet we're in jail. Did we misunderstand? Did we miss something? Because we shouldn't be here. I think that there was a whole lot of why going on. But somewhere in the middle of that night, I think they heard the words of Jesus ring through their minds. In this world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. And then in the middle of the night, something incredible happens. During the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Flash forward to the next morning when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. How those guys get out of jail? Someone came and told them, look, the men that you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, 
For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Do you have a picture in your mind of what's going on? Middle of the night, angel comes, opens the doors, the apostles leave. They got to be thinking, this is the coolest thing going. Next morning, the guards are standing at the door. The door's still locked. Everything's locked. The guards haven't done anything. They haven't left their position. How that happened, don't have a clue except by the power of God. But the apostles are back at Solomon's porch in the temple teaching. Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, they're ready to have a trial. And all of a sudden, they don't have any prisoners. And in the midst of trying to figure out what to do, somebody comes in and says, those guys you put in jail, they're teaching out in the temple again. They go and get them and just, I think, probably gently say, would you please come with us? Because if it's a big brouhaha, they're going to get killed in the process. And that sets the stage for an incredible opportunity for the religious leaders in this in this center section of scripture. Let me let me just say this. I, I think that this is the core truth of the middle of chapter five. I think the core truth in the beginning of chapter five is you know, what's your motivation? What's your motivation for giving? What's your motivation for serving? What's your motivation for following Jesus? Why is it that you do that? Where's your heart? The middle section, I think that this is the core truth. Don't let your own agenda Get in the way of missing, uh, of seeing what God is doing. Don't let the stuff you're involved in get in the way of seeing how God is working all around you. Because that's what happened with Caiaphas and the religious leaders. They had their own plan. They had their own setup, their own agenda. And they missed, they missed what God was doing. They had an incredible opportunity to discover really who Jesus was. But rather than seeing the Christ, they saw competitors. Rather than seeing the Lord, they saw a loss of control. Rather than being filled with a fear of the divine, they were filled with a fear of death. Don DeWelt said, The truth concerning sin applied to man's conscience will either make him angry or cause godly sorrow for his sin. In the case of Pentecost, godly sorrow was the result. Here, anger was manifest. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're charged with two things. Two very specific things the council charges the apostles with. One is disobeying what they'd been told in chapter 4. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. So that's the first charge. The second charge is that they say, you're trying to blame us for the crucifixion of Jesus. Right? Those are the two charges. How does Peter and the apostles respond? Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. To the first charge, he says, guilty. As charged, we're going to obey God rather than men. I think that there's um, there's probably hours to unpack that in our life. What's it look like for you to obey God rather than man? That's a hard thing because we live in a world, we live in a culture where there's an effort to legislate God out of our conversations, right? Right? Can't talk about Jesus in the workplace. Can't talk about Jesus at school. 
can't talk about Jesus and all kinds of things because that's not, um, because that's too narrow, it's too exclusive. What's it mean in your life to obey God rather than man? I I don't know because I think for all of us it looks a little bit different. But here's what Peter and the apostles said. They said that the council had said, don't talk about Jesus. And they said, you decide. We're going to obey God or man. We're choosing to obey God. The second charge that, that, um, that they're given, that they're being blamed for the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter says, guilty is charged on that one too. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter says, you don't want to be blamed, but you're responsible. um, If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 27. I, I just want to point something out that I think is so, so interesting. Matthew 27, starting about verse 20. Matthew writes these words. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Who's the chief priest? Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. That's that's who it's talking. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what do I do with Jesus who's called Messiah? They all said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us. And on our children. What they say to the apostles? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Months before they had said, Yeah, we'll take responsibility. We want him dead. Several months later they said, You're blaming us. Do you see the discrepancy in that? They missed what God was doing. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Back in Acts 5, verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Jesus. How's that for a bold response? Gamaliel, Gamaliel is a guy that's mentioned later in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 22. He's the guy who was the primary teacher for the apostle Paul when he was a Pharisee. Um, at that point, Paul's name was Saul. And Gamaliel was one of his main teachers. Gamaliel's advice to the council, I think, was probably both good and bad. It was absolutely right on target when he said, you don't want to oppose God. Do you understand how silly that is to think about opposing God? God's going to win every time, and it's not even going to be close. You don't want to oppose God. That was great advice. But Gamaliel's advice also was, you know what? If this is of man, it's just going to kind of peter out. You know, it's going to be like these other things. It's going to go by the wayside. And that kind of sounds good on the surface. And ultimately, in this case, God used it. But that's not really great advice in terms of thinking big picture, right? In, in 1830, Joseph Smith says he has a vision and has gold plates that creates a new revelation from God that doesn't match up with Scripture, right? It's 185 years ago. It hasn't petered out. And about 600, Muhammad has this vision and Islam is born. It hasn't petered out. Not everything that's from, from man or um, not from God just automatically goes away. Here's what I think the, the right advice from Gamaliel would have been in that setting to those leaders. And here's the advice that I think is true for us as well. I think Gamaliel should have said, we've got to figure out what the truth is. We have to pursue truth. If you're here this morning um, and, and you've got questions about whether or not to give your life to Jesus, whether or not to follow him, you can get advice from lots of people. You can get input from lots of directions. Find truth. Pursue truth, and God will show himself. If they had pursued truth, what would they have found? A lame man had been healed by the power of Jesus. That lame man is running around the temple. Hmm. Two people lie about the amount of money that they give to the church, and they die instantly. Hmm. People are being healed all over the place by the power of Jesus. Hmm. We jailed these guys and somehow they got out and they're preaching while the guards are still in place and the doors are still locked. Hmm. Jesus was crucified, placed in a tomb and was there for three days and came out alive. Hmm. Pursue truth. That's the way that you can find out where to center your life, what to base your decisions on, where your heart should go. Pursue truth. 
The apostles um, counted it an honor to suffer in the, for the name of Jesus. Um, that's perspective. That's just incredible perspective. Let me, let me just tie together what I think the three main themes are from, from Acts chapter 5. The, the first is, is, it really is a question, is a challenge. What's your motivation? Why is it that you follow Jesus? Why is it that you give? Why is it that you serve? Your heart is what God is after. He's not after your actions. He's not after just your intellect. He's after your heart. Don't let your own agenda get in the way of missing what God is doing. That's, I think, the second truth that's, that's just the core there. It's so easy for us to miss what God's doing because we're worried about all the stuff of our life. Don't do it. Third thing is, is this. Pursue truth. Pursue truth. Pursue truth, and God will reveal himself. And, and, um, we're going to close the service with a song. That, uh, it's a, a hymn that, that I asked the band to do. In 1753, a guy named Robert Robinson was born. When he was five years old, his dad died. Um, his, his father and mother had had a marriage that was unusual in that she was very poor, um, and he came from a wealthy family. When his dad died, when his dad died, um, his grandfather um, disinherited Robert Robinson. So that by the time he was 14, he had to be uh, essentially sold from his family. Uh, he went to, to work um, as an apprentice in London, miles from his home and from his mom. Um, when he was there, he studied, just studied and studied, and, and um, his faith grew in an incredible way. And when he was 22 years old, he wrote these words that, um, that we're going to finish with. They're words that are not um, real familiar to us, so let me just kind of talk through them as you see them on screen. Come thou fount of every blessing. Fount's a word that means source. Come thou source of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Shape my heart so I can sing of your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, some beautiful poem, sung by flaming tongues above, sung by the angels. I'll praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer, uh, that, that term comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's, it was an altar, a stone that said, God is my help. Yeah. There's the sense in that, that text that says, here I raise the stone of help. Hither by thy help I'm come. I'm here, God, because you brought me here. I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed. He intervened. He intercepted by the power of his precious blood. His blood came in between me and God. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained, I'm compelled, I'm forced to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, like a monocle around the feet of prisoners, bind my wandering heart to thee. Here's the challenge for us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Let's stand together and let's sing.